So this afternoon we're going to study Luke chapter 7 and verses 11 to 35. Luke chapter 7 verses 11 to 35. And before we do that, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks that once again we may gather here in the name of Jesus to study your word, the Holy Scriptures. Lord, please prepare our hearts to receive your word for that which it truly is, the very words of God. Please help me as I speak and please help help us all as we hear that we may do that which the word requires of us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke chapter 7, and we start reading at verse 11. Hear the word of God. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the stretchers and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole country of through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, He healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women... None is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptised with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptised by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, And calling to one another, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children." Amen, and may God bless his word to us. 
So I realize this is a much larger portion of text than we often study um, when we're studying a New Testament passage. But it seemed to me that this section of narrative goes together and has been written in such a way that it should be dealt with at least in the first instance as one unit, as, as, as one piece, because it all is relevant to um, the same points. We're, we're looking here at the power of Jesus as the incarnate Son of God, the power of Jesus and the things that he can do in obedience to the will of God as he's preaching the salvation of God to be found in and of himself. We're looking also at John the Baptist. Once more, John appears in our um, in the narrative. We're, we're told that, that John is the greatest of men born of women. And yet, compared to one who is in the kingdom of God, he's uh, weaker than the least of one of those who are in the kingdom of God. And then we're, we're pointed to the fact that there is a price for refusing to accept the message or the proclamation that God has sent forth. So let's look at what in my Bible set out as the first paragraph of our text today, and that is Jesus raising the widow's son in the town called Nain. So he approaches this town called Nain and he arrives there right in the midst of a funeral. The young man is dead and death in and of itself is is tragedy enough. You know, we cry at funerals, we cry for a reason. It's even if we're at the funeral of, of, of a beloved believer, someone whom we know is in the Lord, we still cry. We cry probably in that instance because of the separation that is happening. If, if you're used to having someone around you, if you're used to having a certain person in your life, if you love a person, if you enjoy your interactions with that person, well, you know, they've, they've gone on to be with the Lord and you remain here. And that is actually something of a painful experience. But for we who are believers, if, if we lose someone that we know is actually not in the Lord or we have no reason to believe that they are in the Lord, well, that's an even more painful experience. It's, it's a very dark experience when you're um, at the funeral of someone whom you loved and yet you have no reason to believe that they are a Christian. It's painful enough for any mother to bury her son. No parent wants to outlive any of their children. I'm speaking as a parent. I don't want to outlive any of my children. I know that you don't want to outlive any of your children. You would much rather your children put you in the ground than you go through the pain of putting your own children in the ground. Because you feel, we all feel, that that's the way things ought to be. That, that the older ones should go on before the younger. So there's that. You've got a mother burying her son. But the mother's a widow. She is, by all considerations, now alone in the world and will be basically utterly reliant upon the charity of those around her. Her her family line has come to an end. She was a widow. She once had a husband. The family line of the man that she married has come to an end. The, the blessings of God and the promises of God that were given to the people of Israel were that they would be fruitful. 
that he would bless the families, that they would continue on through the generations to possess the promised land. So no matter which way you look at it, um, for this for this woman, she's in a, a dark, sad and lonely place. And verse 13 tells us, and when the Lord saw her, and, and it's worth just stopping there. This is the first time in the Gospel of Luke that Luke uses simply the expression, the Lord. And when the Lord saw her. People want to argue about this and say, oh, look, it doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus was divine. It doesn't necessarily, he's not literally saying that Jesus is, is the son of God there because the word that's translated as Lord could be, it could be just considered to be a term of respect. Well, you can argue that, but um, here's the simple fact of the matter. The Christians of the early church would die before they would call someone else the Lord. So it must have meant something to them. If, if, if all it was was a term of respect without any particular meaning, well, you can use a term of respect without any particular meaning to anybody at any time. But if in your mind it's the title of your saviour, it's the title of your divinity, well, then you don't just lay it about. You don't just share it with anyone. You don't just give that title to anybody. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. The Lord saw her, the Lord had compassion on her. Our God is a gracious and merciful God. Our God is a compassionate God. It is possible to be hurt so badly at times that you, instead of looking to God, you look to your own pain and you wonder, where is God in all of this? What's going on with all of this? But I assure you, when you stop looking to your own pain and start seeking solace in God himself, seeking comfort in God himself, you will find that he is a compassionate saviour. He cares. He has comfort for us. He has strength to give us. We're not left alone in the world, ever. The Lord has compassion on this widow, on this woman who is basically now at the saddest point of her life and says to her, do not weep. Well, think about it. Luke has already called Jesus the Lord. If I said to a woman mourning in this state of mind, do not weep, you might even think I was being cruel because I don't have much to offer. I can't do anything about this situation. But Jesus says to her, do not weep. And then he gives her a reason not to weep. Then he came up and touched the beer, B-I-E-R in my Bible. We'd, we'd, we'd call it a stretcher. Been carried out on, on, on something like a stretcher bed. And the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Consider. Young man, I say to you, arise. And where there was death, now there is life. All that Jesus had to do was speak. That life comes to us through Jesus. And we are supposed to remember when we, when we read 
a narrative such as this and also the narrative of Jesus bringing Lazarus back from the dead in the Gospel of John. You go back to the book of Genesis and you find that before creation that there was not life. There was chaos. There was, there was, if you want to think of it, sterile matter. Who had the power to say to something that was not living, now you will live? And the answer is always and only God. Who put the breath of life into the man that was made from the clay of ground? The answer is God. Luke calls Jesus the Lord, and then he tells us of the power of Jesus, and it's the power to do something that only God can do, and what Jesus can do that only God can do is that he can simply say, I say to you, arise. This is not mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. You know, this is a genuine restorative miracle. He speaks And so it is. The dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all and they glorified God, saying a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. It sure would spread. The widow's dead son has been brought back to life. The widow is not alone in the world. Her The worst day of her life has become a day of rejoicing and happiness. You know, there's, there's all sorts of um, pictures of salvation here. Never forget that the way the scripture describes us is that we were dead in our sin. And the scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death. Jesus can give life. When Jesus says, I say to you, arise, my friends, we arise. If he can do it in in the earth as it now is with someone who has lived and then died, what, what limit is there to his power in the coming day, in the day of his return, in, in the day of the resurrection? I say to you, arise. That's the hope of our eternal life. Resurrection bodies called to live in the presence of Jesus forever and ever. The connection to the the paragraph or the the narrative of the raising of of the widow's son is there in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to John. So John is in prison. John is, um, he's, basically at the mercy of Herod. And John calls two of his disciples to him and sends them to Jesus, saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? There are many ways we could consider this question. Could it be that in prison, in this time of darkness, John himself is suffering from doubt? And it's possible. I mean, John is still, though he be a prophet and though he be, as Jesus calls him, the greatest man yet born, he is still 
a man. And I'm sure to be imprisoned at the mercy of a Herod is, is not to be in a good place. I wonder if one of the reasons that he sent his disciples to Jesus was simply in the hope that Jesus, who is ministering and exhibiting all of this power, perhaps he's hoping that Jesus would remember John and somehow or other work it so that John comes out of prison. You know, just just because John is called to this ministry of being the forerunner of the Lord Jesus, John is called to this ministry of being a preacher, John is called to this ministry of being a prophet, it doesn't mean that you enjoy the bad things that happen to you. You know, the people who serve God are not necessarily sadomasochistic. You know, no one wants the bad stuff to happen to us. All of us, I think, understand that in this world and, you know, considering things that have happened in the news recently, for example, a a man lost a fairly prominent job for no other reason than he attended a church where five years ago a previous pastor preached a sermon that uh, said some things that the thought police didn't like and he lost his job. None of us want to be in these dark places. None of us want to suffer these trials. John the Baptist didn't want to be in prison at the mercy of the Herods. And there he was. I don't know whether John the Baptist is actually doubting his mission or his calling. I don't know that John the Baptist is actually doubting whether or not Jesus is the saviour. I'm wondering if John the Baptist is doubting whether or not I, John the Baptist, should actually be in prison at this moment. I wonder if he's doubting that this is indeed the purpose of God. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I, I just throw that in there. And when the men had come to him, they said at verse 20, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And I want to commend these men at this moment. You've been sent to somebody with a message by the Lord. I'm sorry, by your Lord, by John the Baptist, they're disciples of John the Baptist. They've been sent with a message from John the Baptist. And notice they use the exact words they were given. No embellishments, no personal input. John gave us a message. John sent us a message to speak. And here it is. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? There's just, there's just a little bit of application there for any Christian. We're sent with a message, and it's not our message. We're sent with a message from the Lord. We're sent with the scriptures to preach. I'm not saying that you don't teach. I'm not saying that you don't preach. I'm not saying that you don't use illustrations. I'm not saying any of those things. But be very careful. Make sure that the doctrine you teach is the doctrine that God has taught. When God sends you with particular words, that have particular definitions, meanings and applications, use those words in the way that God intends. The question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And it appears that the Lord Jesus put them on hold. They've turned up. They've said we're from John. We've got this question for you. These are the words of John. Are you the one that is to come or shall we look for another? Well, it appears that the Lord Jesus said, okay, Here's what I want you to do. You stand here. You have your eyes open. You have your mouth shut and you watch. See what's about to happen. And when you've seen what has happened, 
In that hour, verse 21, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. So in that hour, for around about that hour, they saw him ministering in the power of God's Holy Spirit. They were eyewitnesses to the things that Jesus, the Son of God, could do. He had power over disease. He had power over plagues. He had power over evil spirits. He could give sight to the blind. You see, there's an unspoken question there. Who can do these things? Who can do these things? Do you think that there's another? Do you think that there could possibly be another one sent from God with this kind of power? Who can do these things? Verse 22, and he answered them. So after this, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. So there's a reference back again to the raising up of the son of the widow of Nain. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Because we've taken or I've chosen to teach through such a largish portion of text, we're not going to go and trace back through the um, Old Testament references that the, prophets have, that the prophets have spoken concerning the blind seeing, concerning the lame walking, concerning um, the deaf hearing, concerning the dead living. We're not going to go back and search for those things. But, you know, references there, if, if, if you've got a reference Bible, it'll point you back to various passages in, in prophets like Isaiah. Blessed is the one who is not offended. Let, let me expand that word a bit. Offended, scandalized, caused to stumble, unable to accept me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, here's another one of those blessings. And it's an important thing to note. Think of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Think of Psalm 2 concerning God's king set upon Zion's holy hill. You are my son, today I have forgotten, have begotten you. And what does it say? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed is the one, says Jesus, who sees me for what I am. Blessed is the one who accepts me for who I am. Blessed is the one who believes the message that has been taught. So if John's roundabout question was, should I really be left here rotting in the jail? After all, I am the forerunner of the Messiah and you are the Messiah. And it appears to me that you're the most powerful prophet of any kind that has ever been sent by God. You know, Elijah and, and Elijah did amazing things. But you're doing Elisha and Elijah type things every day that you preach the word. You know, there were some miracles in the ministry of those two men. But you're doing more than they did. And if I were to combine it with Moses, you're still doing more than was ever done. Am I supposed to be out 
being your forerunner or am I supposed to be in jail? That's what, that's, as I said, that's what I think John might have been saying. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus is saying basically to John when he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He's saying, this is the lot or the hand that God has dealt you. You came, you proclaimed, you sent disciples to me, you announced that I was coming, the world has hated you, you are going, you are in prison, things do not look good for you, but this is that which God has assigned to you. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And so here we go again. Let's let's draw a little application. I remember once reading um, in the life of a Christian who was who had suffered much in their life preaching the gospel in China. And one of the things he said that always stuck with me, he said, in some ways, there's two kinds of faith. Sometimes there's faith that works deliverance and sometimes there's faith that works perseverance. God will never leave you without one or the other. Sometimes you are to be delivered from the troubles that you have and sometimes you are to persevere in the troubles that you have. God will never let you down. God will never leave you without one or the other. But in the end, you will be delivered or you will persevere. It's one or the other. And at verse 23, as Jesus sends this message back to John and blessed is the one who is not offended by me, he's basically saying to John, persevere, my friend, persevere. You're in the hand of God. That which is happening to you is according to the will of God. Verse 24 tells us that when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. It's an interesting thing. He doesn't send to John a message along the lines of, like he says basically here's some amazing things about John. Speaking of, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John. He says some amazing things about John, but he doesn't say them to John and he doesn't send his praise of John to John. He tells John, your disciples know and you know by the works that you've that you that I am doing, that I'm the one. And I'm telling you that even in prison, you're serving me and there you will be. He doesn't send him with um, complimentary words. He doesn't send to him complimentary words. Now, is there something to see in that? Well, maybe there is, because maybe it wouldn't have been good for John's disciples to hear Jesus speaking highly of John. After all, John's disciples are supposed to become Jesus's disciples. John is the forerunner. John is turning people to Jesus. So John's disciples are not supposed to be giving glory to John. And um, perhaps, perhaps Jesus in his lordship knows that John in his servantship, it would not do him good to think that um, he ought not to be suffering in the way that he is. You know, that's, it's kind of, do you want some bitterness in your Christian life? I'll tell you how you get some bitterness in your Christian life. Start to dwell on the idea that you don't deserve to be treated in the way you're being treated. And if the, the more you think in that way, 
the more sour the taste gets in your mouth. I don't deserve the way I'm being treated. I don't deserve people to think that of me. Look, it may well be true. No, you know, if false accusations are painful things and you don't deserve them. And in that, I'm not saying I'm without sympathy. But if you want to dwell on that, you will get bitter and you will get angry. It's just the way it is. That's the way we are in our sinfulness. Don't start thinking about what you don't deserve. You know, Jesus didn't deserve to go to the cross. He, he's the greatest example of someone who got what they did not deserve. He did not deserve to be found guilty. He did not deserve to be flogged. He did not deserve to be insulted and spat upon. He did not deserve to be tortured. He did not deserve to be publicly executed. He did not deserve any of those things. Yet he did those things without lashing out and without dwelling upon his misfortunes. I often think it's not good preaching to tell people that you have to be like Jesus because I know we're not like Jesus. But sometimes, my friends, it has to be said, we're called to be Christ-like, to take up our cross and to follow after Jesus. Sometimes you have to be like Jesus. <laughs> it's just as simple as that. Don't dwell on these things. So anyway, Jesus speaks concerning John. And as I said, he speaks very highly of John. I mean, we as Christians, what, you know, if ever we hear the Lord say something so complimentary about ourselves, I'm sure we'll rejoice in it. You know, we'll, we'll be like a, we'll be like a dog that's suddenly let out into the, into the backyard and shown the light of day and patted on the head and given a nice time. We'll be so happy to hear these things. Jesus speaks concerning John, verse 24. When John mess, John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What would a reed shaken by the wind indicate? A man without character, a man who bends to that which is easy, a man who's always taking the easiest path. Did you go out to see that kind of man? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing and, you know, once again, a similar idea. Did you, did you go out to see a dandy? Did you go out to see a nice boy? Did you go out to see the prettiest boy around? You know, that's not actually complimentary. Think of um, King David's son, Absalom. One of the things that stressed to us in the Old Testament text about Absalom was that he was an incredibly handsome man who had beautiful hair. And he had a haircut once a year and his hair weighed a certain amount. You know, did you go out to see someone like Absalom? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in, live in luxury are in the king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Notice. Jesus is making them think here. Where are, you, where are you looking for for salvation? Where are you looking for for a word of God? Because it's not coming to you through the court of the king. It's not coming to you through the wealthy. It's not coming to you through the worldly powers that be. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, verse 28, 
among those born of women, none is greater than John. So, you know, if I ask you the question now, I'm sure you'll have the right answer because you've got the scripture right here in front of you. And um, I've mentioned we, we've now sort of mentioned this a few times in, in the course of this little lesson. But um, who's the greatest man in the Old Testament? Or who's the greatest old covenant man? And the answer is John. It's not Moses. It's not Abraham. <laughs> it's not Elijah or Elisha or any of the prophets. It's not even King David. The greatest of the Old Testament men? John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. I think here Jesus is giving us a distinction between what you might call an old covenant saint and a new covenant saint. Now, that's not to say that the saints under God's old covenant or, or what, the, what the New Testament calls the old covenant were not saved. Those who had saving faith were most certainly saved. That's not what it's saying. But it's saying that our relationship with God through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of his resurrection, through the fact that he is God, the son of God, enthroned at the right hand of God with the scepter of power in his hand. In, 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 in those terms, this makes anyone who is in the kingdom greater than John. And John was the greatest of the Old Testament men ever to be born. When all the people heard this, Verse 29, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, which means they declared God to be in the right. They declared that God was doing good and wonderful things, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So John called for people to come and repent. And the common people heard this and even the tax collectors. So even the, you know, to, to the Jew, the tax collector is the traitorous scum of the earth. A tax collector gets told to collect, let's just put it in simple terms, he's told to collect $1,000 and if you make any more than $1,000, the profit's yours. You know, imagine if that's how tax collectors worked in the present day and age. Who would you hate most of all? You know, our, our police force these days is very largely a tax collecting force. <laughs> you know, you, you pay a little bit of extra tax for driving at over a certain speed, you know. They're really interested in writing on-the-spot fines because on-the-spot fines bring in revenue. Well, just imagine if it worked that way. If um, the mission of the policeman was to fine anyone for anything that they possibly can and once you've reached $1,000 for the week, well, anything you go over that $1,000, that's profit straight into your pocket. How much would you hate that policeman then? It's pretty annoying when they, when they give you the fine. But if you knew that they were giving you the fine to put the money directly into their own pocket, you'd start to get a little bit hot under the collar. And that's what tax collectors were like. Tax collectors, they declared God just, for they had been baptised with the baptism of John. To, be, to, to, to have been baptised with the baptism of John, Jesus is saying they heard the teaching of John, they heard the preaching of John, and they submitted to the preaching and the teaching of John. And they did that which John commanded them to do, which was to be baptised and repent of their sins. Verse 30, But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptised by him. So 
those who considered themselves to be already in the right, those who were righteous in their own eyes, those who felt that they had nothing to worry about in in the idea that the Messiah was coming, they rejected the purpose of God for themselves and did not seek to repent under the preaching of John. In other words, their response to the word of God was not that which was required. Verse 31, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. You were always out of step is basically what Jesus is saying. When the tune was happy, you did not respond in happiness. And when the tune was mourning, you did not respond in weeping. You've always been out of step with the word of God. You've never submitted yourself truly to the word of God. You've never truly accepted the word of God for that which it really is. You're like children. You're like children who, 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 are, who are playing games whereby they sort of make each other trip up. You're childish. Your approach to the scriptures is childish. And then he gives them an exact reason why. Verse 33. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. Isn't it interesting? That's, enough, that's the same thing that many of them accuse Jesus of. Jesus conducts a healing by the power of God's Holy Spirit, and they say he's done it by the power of Satan. John the Baptist comes preaching, tells them that in their self-righteousness, they're hypocrites, that they're a nest of vipers, and they say he's demon-possessed. He's telling us what we don't want to hear, therefore he's demon-possessed. They say of John the Baptist, he has a demon. Jesus says, verse 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. So he says, I've also come ministering and I'm not just like John the Baptist. And what do you have to say to that? Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's basically saying, you're, you're approaching these things of great importance. You're approaching these issues of eternity with a very shallow viewpoint. You know, you, you're always asking the question, how much is enough? How, how devoted do I need to be to the word of God? How much, how, how much obedience is enough? And whenever someone comes and tells you it's not enough, God wants your whole life, not just one-tenth of it, you say, demon-possessed, sinner. Well, look, he's having a glass of wine, drunk. You, you find any excuse not to accept the depth of the teaching. You find any excuse not to bring yourself completely under the teaching of the Scriptures. And so you're shallow, foolish hypocrites. Verse 35, Jesus says, Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is shown to be in the right. Wisdom is shown to be good. Wisdom is shown to be from God. This this word justified, I mean, in, in certain theological contexts, in certain contexts in Scripture, it's speaking of our standing before God. But here the word is being used to more or less indicate 
Well, a word we might use is vindication or demonstration. Wisdom is demonstrated by all her children. Wisdom is made evident by all her children. Jesus is, is, is saying that these people who believe the preaching of John and have now come to me and accept my claim of lordship over all of creation and over all of their life, these people are demonstrating wisdom and are the children of wisdom. I'm not saying that he's specifically referring back to this, but think of in the book of Proverbs where wisdom is spoken of as a woman who's in the streets calling for people to come to her for instruction and for food and to be strengthened. And Jesus is sort of speaking of wisdom in that way. Wisdom is demonstrated, vindicated, justified by all of her children. These are the wise people. And concerning the Pharisees and the lawyers, well, they have rejected the purpose of God for themselves. They knew the scriptures but didn't understand them. They knew the scriptures but would not submit to them. They knew the scriptures but would not obey them with the obedience of faith that comes from the heart, to to quote the Apostle Paul from the book of Romans. They wanted to be just religious enough to say that I'm religious, just religious enough to say that I'm a good person. But the truth is they did not want to submit to God. They did not want to accept the claims of Jesus. They could not stand the thought that someone was showing them up for what they are. In a way, they wanted to be messianic. They wanted people coming to them for salvation. They wanted people coming to them and recognising their great power and wisdom. They, they, you know, if people will not submit to God, in the end, what they're always trying to do is set themselves up as their own God. It's not that they have no religion. They're trying to say that my knowledge, my heart, my wisdom, these things are sufficient. I know all that is needed to know. Respect me. And that's got some jagged edges in it in today's world. Respect me. Don't doubt me. Don't question me. When I say that I'm, you must submit. You know, when 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 uh, people insist that we must use inaccurate pronouns, when people insist that we must recognise their supposed transition from male to female or female to male or somewhere in the middle or whatever it is that they're claiming to be. In the end, they're basically saying, you recognise my claim of divinity over myself. You recognise that I am setting myself up as my own God and you submit to it. And we as Christians, ultimately we cannot submit. We cannot submit to lies. We cannot speak lies. We cannot bless lies. There is only one God and there is only one Saviour, his Son, Jesus Christ. And there is only one Holy Spirit poured out upon the church by God the Father and God the Son. And we must live in the power of God's Holy Spirit, obeying God's word. The world is filled with liars and fools, but wisdom is justified by all her children.
and her children are those who submit to the teachings of Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for that which you have spoken to us. I pray, Father, concerning the things that I have said. If I've spoken amiss, if I've spoken from my my own vain imagination, Lord, let those things be forgotten. But if by the grace of God I have managed to speak according to the word of God, well then, Father, I pray you would take those words and hammer them into our hearts and use them to make us more like Jesus. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.